Hey guys, welcome to Basketball Network. My name is Steven, and today we'll be talking with Antonio Williams. Antonio is a sports content creator, writer, speaker, skills enhancement coach, and a former scout with the Phoenix Suns. Antonio, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Steven, I appreciate you having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Can't wait to do it. M me too, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so before we deep dive into the world of uh, NBA scouting, let's uh, briefly touch upon your background as a basketball player. So you played yeah. uh, you played point guard at uh, collegiate level at Brandeis University. And what was that yes. experience like? And were there opportunities for you to play basketball professionally? Oh, it was great, and um, I, I enjoyed every step. I enjoyed it every step of the way. Um, it's one of the probably top two or three Division three leagues in the country because a lot of the players that are really good players in the league, Stephen, were also recruited by Ivy League schools, Patriot League schools, because the schools in my league are on that same academic level. So you have a good number of Division One caliber players in the league. And it was awesome. It was great, great competition. We traveled every, we flew everywhere with the exception of NYU. That was our rival. My school was in Boston. Um, as I said, NYU's our rival. We had schools in our league that were in Atlanta, St. Louis, Cleveland, Rochester, New York, um, Pittsburgh. So uh, our league sort of spans half of the United States. So amazing opportunity, amazing experience, loved every second of it. And uh, yeah, there were times there were opportunities to continue to play after that. But I was fortunate enough to get a job in the NBA league office and I jumped all over that. <laughs> Uh, how hard was it for you to kind of process the fact that you weren't going to be a professional basketball player? Because I can only imagine that that was something you pursued your whole life. Was that a challenging, right, cha right. challenging thing to do? Yeah, it was. It, it was. Uh, it was a challenge, and and um, I was fortunate enough to go and work in in basketball right after, so I was able to kind of uh, itch that scratch, so to or scratch that itch, so to speak. But at the same time, there's nothing like competing. There's nothing like playing. There's nothing like that emotional release that you get when you're playing. I know for me, I love playing on the road because I love to look at the crowd after you made a big play and you suck the air out of the building because you made a big play. I like to look at the crowd and see their reactions. So I love that us against the world mentality. So I love playing on the world on the road. That was my vice. Um, so there's nothing that replaces that, but working in the game is all is also great as well. So can you walk us through your post basketball experience? You know, how, how did you become the, the basketball scout for the Phoenix Suns? Um, you know, I, I wanted to be growing up in, in uh, born in St. Louis, did some growing up in, in Southern California as well. Um, I wanted to become general manager of the Lakers and take over the world. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that. Obviously, it's not that simple, right? You know, we are in the relationship business. It's just wrapped in basketball. So you have to build those relationships and build those bridges in order to make those opportunities. And um, so when I graduated, of course, I wanted to work for a team, but I was blessed with an, 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 an amazing opportunity to go work in the, uh, in the league office. And, and so I took that and thought that, yes, this would be great, but also I want to make sure as I'm learning things about working in the league, I'm also making myself marketable for a team. Mm -hmm. And um, so did that and, and um, then an opportunity to work in scouting 
and uh, player personnel for the Boston Red Sox presented itself. And I played baseball growing up as well. Um, so, um, so I took that opportunity and we were fortunate enough to win a world series. First one in 86 years in Boston, amazing ride. And I was still thinking along the whole time that I want to go back to a team and work in the NBA, Steven. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, then I was able to, um, do some work at ESPN first on the NBA side, scouting, writing as an analyst, and then going to that high school slash recruiting side, doing the same thing all with an eye on going to a team, right? And that was um, the end goal. That was the end goal. That was the end goal. And but at the same time, what I was doing was learning other segments of the business, uh, building relationships in other areas as well. Um, When I was first when I first got to ESPN, we were a couple of years in from the NBA had moved away from uh, scouting and moved away from high school players being able to declare for the NBA draft and we started the one and done. Mm -hmm. And so with me being on the uh, high school side at ESPN, I'm building relationships with AAU coaches, I'm building relationships with college coaches. And those are all things that you need when you're essentially if you're on the pro side, and you're an NBA and you're working as a scout, you have to be able to gain intel on players, ascertain if that intel is true or not. And you do that through your relationships. So I was gaining relationships in the space and then was fortunate enough to get a, 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 a college basketball sports marketing job at Nike. So doing some of the same things and amazing opportunity there, building relationships, learning another segment of the business. And, and, um, and then I worked and led a, started and led a, um, basketball division for a major financial management company. So again, learning other layers of the business, learning more about uh, building those relationships that I ultimately relied on when I got to Phoenix. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, so for me, Stephen, I've been fortunate enough to touch every aspect of a player's career in their respective life cycle, right? So that's as a player, financial side, in the media, working for the league, working for a brand, and of course, working for a team as well. And of course, I leverage all those things when I'm providing content now, bringing the person that's watching my content or listening to it, kind of taking them behind the curtain a little bit. But I also too, as I watch the game, I'm still evaluating players and relying on all that experience and whatnot to kind of shape my opinion and my perspective on players as well. So I rely on all, man. <laughs> That's impressive, man. Quite a resume on you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I definitely appreciate it. You get to Phoenix. You became a basketball scout. Can you just describe yes. how is the scouting department set up uh, within the NBA organization? Is there a universal pattern or does it depend on each organization? Um, it really depends on the organization. And, and some organizations run small and some org- organizations in terms of numbers of scouts. And in Phoenix, we ran small, which gave us the opportunity to observe players in other regions, do some NBA scouting as well, do some G League scouting. So we were doing it all because we had a relatively small staff and that was by design. And then there are some organizations that believe in siloing everything. So they have a bigger staff and, you know, the college scouts in the Midwestern region only do the Midwestern region mm-hmm. and the college and the scouts in Europe only do Europe and the scouts and for and the player personnel scouts only do NBA scouting and and they silo it and and you know there's 
more than one way to do things to uh, to arrive at that optimal uh, decision making uh, process. You know, there are more than one way. There's more than one way to do it. So, um, but that's how we did it in Phoenix and ran small. You got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. So again, it's kind of different. It depends on the philosophy of the ownership and the philosophy of the GM that they hire as well. Uh, can you describe a usual scouting process? What goes into player ev evaluation? How long does it take? Um, you know, again, that that's subjective too, because you you have to kind of tailor it. Yes, there are certain objectives and certain guidelines and pillars that you as an organization sort of champion or you as an organization believe in. And then you also have to take those things and kind of internalize them And, and make them relative to your experience, relative to your level of intel on the player, all of those things. So uh, for me as a scout, um, when I'm looking, Stephen, I'm looking at a player, of course, I'm relying on the great part for me being a point guard was having to look at the game from a bunch of different vantage points, my vantage point the vantage points of my teammates. I have to also be able to know and understand um, the opposition, what they're doing defensively, the strengths and weaknesses of the, the players that they have on the floor. What's their philosophy? I have to know all of that because I have to process it and make adjustments on the fly or set my teammates up for, for success while I'm dealing with whatever the opposition is doing. So, so go ahead. What about the personality? What is the one personality trait you look for, uh, look, look for the most in a prospect? Absolutely. So, Again, as a, I guess I'm that's sort of colored by my perspective as a point guard also. One of the things that I like to look for is, do you have a skill set or a mindset that allows you to, and this is tough, allows you to be obviously very confident in yourself, but you're also able to mesh with players that are better than you. And the reason why I say that, Stephen, is because the vast majority of players that enter the NBA, your entire NBA career, you will be playing with players that are better than you. Exactly. That's the vast majority of players. Exactly. Right? It's all about whether so, you can fit uh, within the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have to, whether that's a skill set and a mindset, you have to bring some team, some uh, aspects to the table that will allow you to be able to mesh with other players. Of course, like the epitome of this is probably is probably Clay Thompson. He's yeah. one of the guys that, you know, has that mentality. I mean, we saw this dude drop 62 points and took 11 dribbles in the game. Right. Yeah. But 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 and that speaks to his efficiency. He's able to play with players that, okay, maybe this guy today is going to have more shot attempts than me, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be effective. And when he, when Golden State had Durant, he was playing with two guys with Durant and Steph Curry that on a nightly basis were probably going to get more shot attempts than him. Yep. But they're from his mentality, from his, his basketball IQ, his defensive approach, All of those things allowed him to play with other players. So he's a guy, again, he, and he's the epitome of the example, that if you have him on your team, Steven, you're not worried about the system. You're not worried about who are the other teammates on the team because Clay Thompson can effectively mold himself to be whatever the team needs him to be. And when I'm looking at college players or I'm looking at European players, That's what I'm looking at because, again, 
you're probably going to come to a team and the team is not going to acquiesce to your personality and your skill set. You're probably going to have to acquiesce to their philosophy, their skill set, and the best players on their team. Do you have the ability to do that? And, and that's one of the things initially that I'm looking for from day one. You mentioned European players. Uh, having said that, uh, do you think there's a general difference between college American players and European players in terms of their ability to fit, to kind of sacrifice their own interests for the sake of the team? Um, you, you know, it, it, I, I used to think that there was a big, big difference. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but now as the basketball world is becoming smaller and smaller, it's not as different as it used to be, right? It, it, it's not that, it's not as much of a uh, discrepancy as it used to be. Um, now, I, I think the way from, a, the way that the game is played stylistically, that leads to some differences for yep. sure. The yep. way that the game is played. And, and but I, I think in terms of mentality, in terms of attitude, that is, 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 um, um, it's not as different as we think it is. And, yeah. and the reason why I say that, Stephen, is because we will see here in the States um, in, in college basketball, the transfer list is almost 900 names every year. And we have about 355 division or so division one schools, mm -hmm. right? And then one of the things that we're starting to see, and not as much, but one of the things that we were starting to see when European players were coming to this, uh, coming to the NBA, and this is very similar to an American college player. A lot of European players, when they were coming to the NBA, if they weren't put into roles where they were receiving a lot of playing time very early, they would look to go back to Europe. And so that made it very similar to an American college player where it was like, hey, if I'm not getting that opportunity, I'm just going to transfer. So it's not as different as we think it is. And, and uh, but stylistically, in terms of the way that the game is played, sure, there are some differences there. Yeah. And, and in terms of, you know, and I guess that leads into from a skill, a skill set standpoint that what we're talking about do you have something, can you bring things to the table that will allow you to play with other great players? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I'm really looking at. Okay, so you go through the scouting process and then the pre-draft workout is uh, seen as the sort of final checkup in the process, you know, one right. last look at the guy. Right. Uh, are workouts sometimes used as a strategy to manipulate draft positions because uh, you, you see teams... For example, small market teams would send uh, out invitations and the uh, players that are expected to go higher in the draft would decline. And uh, do you think that's a thing? And uh, how big overall do agents play in that? Well, there's a lot of gamesmanship when it comes to workouts and where a player ends up. Because again, back to what we're saying, the agents and the players, everybody understands that the vast majority of players, their success is is dependent upon their situation, meaning the who are the teammates, what's the system that we run, who are the coaches, that it's their success is dependent upon that just as much as it's dependent upon that player's natural talent. Mm -hmm. So um, with that being said, everybody wants to get their player to a position where that player is able to do two things. Of course, when they're young, showcase their talent so they can get to their second contract but also be in a situation where they can enjoy some success as well, if possible. Mm 
So everybody wants that. Not everybody's going to get that. So there's a lot of things that go on to try and ensure that as much as possible. So can you hey, share some gonna... examples of what teams? Yeah, do? yeah, you know, sometimes you know, a a a team can like a player, and and um, you know, they can put out a smoke a smoke signal and say, hey, we really like this player, mm -hmm. and shut this player down. So now everybody, the smoke signal has been sort of um, turned on and people know that a, there is a team that likes this player so much that they've shut this player down. Mm -hmm. So there are no more workouts uh, because that player received a promise from that particular team. Mm -hmm. And you try and keep that secret if you are the team that's making the promise. Um, you know, another thing that you can do is if you are a team and you really like a player, you can actually say disparaging things about that player. Hey, I don't know if I really like him that much to kind of keep people off the trail. And maybe other, if you have intimate knowledge of that player, sometimes teams will say, if they don't like that player, then I wonder if maybe we shouldn't like that player. Didn't, so, uh, didn't the Magic do that with Lonzo? Because right, there's so much hype with Lonzo and then he, he tried to tone it down for a bit. <laughs> right, right, right. You can do that. Absolutely. You can... You can do that or you can an, a player can say because they don't want to go to a certain situation, Stephen, they can say, hey, I'm just not going to show up for a workout. I'm mm -hmm. not going to work out for you all. Mm -hmm. Now, the team can say, OK, if you really like that player and you trust all of your intel, you trust all of your scouting, the team can say, OK, if you're not going to work and this rarely happens, you're not going to come in and work out for us. We'll draft you anyway. Mm -hmm and call your bluff the team can do that and that rarely ha rarely rarely happens yeah. um because there are all sorts of things that come in if the player doesn't work out if the player doesn't work out for you you may not get the medicals for that player mm -hmm. so you don't know what's going on from a medical perspective as well so you're really taking a risk if you don't get that sort of up to up close and personal touch with that player mm -hmm. from a draft in, in order to inform your draft decision um, so a player can say that a player can say, Hey, I only want to work out for these teams. And a lot of guys do that. Actually, a lot of guys do that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can, I'm only want to work out for these teams and players at the very top of the draft only work out for one or two teams. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, those teams at the very, very top. And, and then sometimes you'll see a team that's late in the lottery, late in the first round may or may not have a first round pick and that player will will work out for that team and and the team that doesn't have that pick tries to keep that secret because they don't want people to know that hey we're entertaining trying to get in position to draft this player which means that we're signaling that we're going to trade somebody mm -hmm. so there are lots of things that go in go into it and you know and, and when the team puts out a signal it doesn't you have to be able to ascertain is it true or is it false you don't know what it is and so there's lots of gamesmanship that goes a lot on. of mind games oh man steven it's the best time of the year yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you go through the scouting process you evaluate your player and yes. uh, you come to the draft night how involved is the coaching staff when deciding who to pick you know, again, that sort of depends on the team as well. Mm -hmm. And and there are some teams that the coaching staff is very involved. And then there are some teams that, and of course, the coaching staff is meeting with the scouts and the GMs because a lot of people on the coaching staff are actually conducting the workouts 
when a player comes in to work out for you. Mm -hmm. So they're getting that up close and personal touch with the, and, and looking at, you know, how the player reacts from an athletic standpoint. How does the, the player react, Stephen, if you're asking them to do a drill that they've never done before? Right. Mm -hmm. How do they react with that? How do they react if they're in a workout and they're working out against another player and that player that they're working out against is getting the best of them? How do how do they handle that? So the coaches, the coaching staff is getting that up close and personal experience of that. And they can see, you know, these are some sort of the from a philosophical standpoint, these are some of the things that I like offensively, defensively, this is where I see this player can fit in. And, and yes, they give you that insight and we talk about those things. And, and um, so again, but some teams, the coaches are very involved in that. Some teams, they may not be involved in that as much. So it really depends on the team, but, but yeah, you definitely want that, that uh, coaching staff buy-in because at the end of the day, once you draft that player, it's now incumbent upon the management and the coaching staff to develop that player. Mm -hmm. And, and that's very, very big today, Stephen, because we're drafting players now that are, are, um, you know, one and done. So we're drafting players that are going to the G League for a year, graduated from high school and going to IMG Academy for a year, and then coming into the NBA draft. You know, we're not drafting the um, the equivalent of, of Luka Doncic um, is the three and four year college basketball player, the Patrick yep. Ewings, the Michael Jordans, we're, the Kim Olajuwon's, the Larry Johnsons. We're not drafting those players anymore because they're not staying in college that long. So mm -hmm it is incumbent upon us and management and the coaching staff to work together because once that player is on the roster, we have to work together to make sure that player develops. Great. Okay. You basically gave us, uh, described the whole scouting dynamic in the NBA. I would like right. to talk about uh, specifics. Uh, I would like to talk about uh, the first round picks you, the Phoenix Suns made uh, during your tenure in Phoenix. So in right. 2015, you guys selected Devin Booker. Yes. And I must, I, I must say that's, that's, that was an amazing pickup because right. you guys <laughs> picked him at 13th, which was, uh, looking back on it, that was crazy. He's, right. without a doubt, the biggest steal of the, of the, of the draft. Right. Uh, can you describe the scouting process with, uh, with Devin? And why do you think he fell all the way down to number 13? Um, I, I think a couple of things. I think first... Um, with Devin, for me, the scouting process was I was working in um, basketball at Nike. And um, so when I was working in college basketball at Nike, um, I, I saw Devin a lot and mm -hmm. saw him a lot in high school, saw him a lot um, on the circuit. So I saw Devin a lot and saw a lot of things that I liked. Of course, I saw the skills standpoint from what he could do from a skills per, uh, perspective. But there were a couple of other things that I saw that were very underrated with Devin. Um, and, and I think this is part of the reason why he dropped. Um, number one, he didn't start a game at Kentucky. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Um, he came off the bench. But some underrated aspects of Devin Booker's game. He's more athletic than people think he is. He's tougher than people think he is. And then the other thing is, and this is going back to some of the things that I look at, and this is colored by when I was at Nike and I started there in 2010, that was at the intersection of the great Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and Kevin Durant. And what you start realizing then is 
there's nobody like those three guys, right? <laughs> and, and so um, you start looking at other things when you're scouting players. And for me, one of the things that I look at, Stephen, and this is going back to Devin, is do you inherently love basketball? Or are you doing this because you're good at it, right? Yep, absolutely. Do you love the game? Or do you love do you love the game more than you love what the game does for you? That's right. Good. And and Absolutely. and you know, so so that's one of the things. And 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 I say that because when you are a guard or a perimeter-based player, you have to love the game, Stephen, more than what the game does you more than what you love what the game does for you. We as perimeter guys have to be married to this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because is so competitive for guards because we're not seven feet tall. We, and, you know, one of the analogies I like to use is guards have to prove that they can play. Bigs have to prove that they can't. <laughs> right. So it's different. So it's a lot of great, different. a lot of great quotes on you. <laughs> right. Right. But does that make sense? It, it, yeah, it's yeah, completely it does, it does. different, Stephen. Like we yeah. have to prove that we can, they have to prove that they can't. Right, because the so, big, big guys are dependent on 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 point guards. Everything depends right. on, on the guards, on the guard play. Yeah, and and big guys are much more rare than we are. Yep, yep. Right. So when you are, so think about it. When someone is a big, you will put up with them just liking basketball. Right? Do you do you like it? Okay, mm-hmm. okay. You're seven feet tall. Okay, yeah. But if you are a guard just because of the numbers we can't just like this right we gotta love this yep <laughs> and, and and so and so and that, had that, that, yeah right and devin had that and devin loves basketball devin's the type that will you know will go and play at at a pickup game somewhere he just loves he loves the hoop and when we look at upside steven we always attribute it to physical things mm-hmm can you get stronger? How athletic are you? But there's some other underrated um, elements of upside as well. And one of them is just inherently loving basketball. Because guess what? The guys that love basketball, just love it organically, they're going to put in the work. Yep. They're going to put in the extra work. Right. So since, since they just love it and they just love to do this, they're going to they're do it without you poking and prodding them to do the extra work Mm -hmm. and so those are the underrated aspects of Devin's game and and those are the things that have made him into a superstar of course the skill aspect but those underrated things that are married with the skills is why he's at the point that he's at right now that's the difference maker skill is something obvious to everyone basically right right uh, was he your number one option going into the draft and who are some alternatives if he wasn't on the board um 13 at 13 he was the guy for me he was the guy for me at 13 Mm -hmm. um you know the other guy that at that stage in the draft that i liked is is i like miles turner Uh and again because of a personal relationship and um, I actually went to cousin. I went to school at Brandeis with his cousin, mm-hmm. and um, so I and I saw Miles when I was at Nike a lot on the circuit competing. I saw him, and uh, so then of course I was able to build a bridge through his his uh, his cousin, and um, again so knew a lot about him before I actually 
uh, became a scout with the Suns. So Miles was my guy. And again, because I felt like there was a skill. One, he, he is, and Devin is like this as well. Basketball IQ and basketball intelligence is very underrated. That's, that's the first thing. And Miles is very intelligent because it means you can process things on the fly and change it and you can adjust, make adjustments on the fly. And the other thing that smart, thing, smart guys do as well, Stephen, is we have to think about this. And I'm going to say this. There are, we just got to the point where we have about maybe 4,200 people that have ever played in the NBA, ever. Mm -hmm. right so in order to make it to that level you have to be insanely confident in yourself right yep but at the same time what happens why sometimes some sometimes guys don't make it is because that insane level of confidence comes back to bite them because they think i'm i'm doing something that only 4200 people in the world have done why do i need to make an adjustment Mm -hmm. If you're telling me something that's wrong, I made it this far doing it my way, right? And some guys to make it to that level and then to accept coaching is difficult for them. But if you look at the players that are able to attain a certain level of greatness, those players aren't difficult to coach. They want to be coached. They want to know the right way. Now, you're going to have to know what you're talking about because they're going to challenge you because they're basketball savants. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to know what you're talking about. But if you know what you're talking about, those guys uh, accept coaching because they they're smart enough to know that, hey, if I've been doing it this way and that and I see a better way, I'm smart enough to make that adjustment on the fly and start doing it the new way. That's Devin. That's Miles Turner. Right. So right. Miles Turner was that guy for me. And then the way that he protects the rim and all that stuff is just. Yeah. He would have been a yeah. great pickup as well. but <laughs> Right, right. At 13, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you right. think about uh, Devin's uh, development thus far? And what do you think is the ceiling for him? You know, um, I love what Devin is doing. And, mm-hmm. and again, because he puts in the work and all those things that I, I mentioned. Um, and, and as far as his ceiling goes, I, I still think, you know, I don't think Devin has completely reached his ceiling because a lot of the things that he does is what Devin is good at is Devin is much there's a couple things he's a better scorer than what people give him credit for because people look at him and oh man he's a great shooter man this dude is a scorer as well right (laughs) this is so so and and for basketball people out there my basketball fam I call him my hoop fam you know (laughs) there's oftentimes there's a difference between shooter and score yeah and this dude can do both right um I I think with Devin one of the things where we'll start to see that he hasn't really really mastered yet and most young players don't really master this Stephen is really having those kill spots on the floor in the mid post right Mm -hmm. And scoring out of the mid post and mm-hmm. scoring out of the post, use because he's stronger than what people give him credit for as well. He's six right? six, right? Six yeah, five, six he's six. six yeah. He's six yeah. six, yeah, and he's stronger than what people. But I think that element of his game, just being able to, you know, of course, obviously Kobe comes to mind, but another guy that comes to mind that is very good at 
using minimal dribbles and getting to those kit, what we call kill spots on the floor and scoring in that mid post area, maybe one, two jabs or without that dribble is Carmelo Anthony. Yep. Right. Using jabs and footwork, getting guys off balance and all of those things. Carmelo is incredibly adept at doing that. And when I see Devin, I'm starting to see flashes of that. But I think that's sort of the next frontier for Devin from a development standpoint. Um, and, and, and he's already started to matriculate into that, you know, quasi playmaking role as well. He's starting to pick that up also. And, yeah. and um, you know, that's one of the things when we were at Phoenix, when we talked about that next level to unlock for him, that's one of the things that we used to talk to him a lot about. Okay, we know you're a certified killer when it comes to getting a bucket, but let's start trying to get some of these other guys involved because not only does it help them, but it's insanely difficult for the defense to account for to guard you when they have to account for you as a scorer and a facilitator, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so those are the aspects of his game that I feel like are the next. That's the next frontier. Yeah, the Phoenix Suns fans will be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's another level. There's another yeah, level. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 2016, uh, the Suns uh, selected Dragon Bender. Yes, uh, with the fourth fourth uh, pick, what mm-hmm. do you think went wrong with Dragon? Because he really seemed like a prototypical big man at the time for the NBA. You know, it, again, it, it's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say exactly pinpoint on one thing that I could say mm-hmm. that didn't work out for him. Um, you know, I, I was really pulling for him and wanted it to work out for him. And again, because I felt like his skill, uh, the skill offering that he had makes it where he could play with other players and, and is, and be effective uh, himself. Um, um, I, I think, I think one of the things that when we look at players in general, Stephen, when, and it's the same thing when American players go to Europe, um, I think the off the court adjustment is the thing that sort of leads to if you're going to have that success on the floor. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily right. have to be about basketball per right. se. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the off the floor adjustment, you know, when you're walking into case in point and, you know, I know I did some consulting for teams in Europe. And as I said, uh, really entertained going over before I was, uh, got a job in the NBA league office. And, you know, one of the things that when I was doing consulting and scouting for t- clubs in Europe that I started to understand was, and you will appreciate this, Stephen, if you are an American player and you go over to Europe and I'm going to say something that's trivial, but it, it's bigger, and you want to go to and eat at McDonald's and KFC for your entire time in Europe, those are often the players that don't make it and they end up coming back home because you're coming to a greater, you're entering into a society where you are now the minority. Mm -hmm. So you have to acquiesce and make some adjustments to the situation that you're entering into. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's difficult for people to, you know what, I have to open myself up to experience other values, other ways of doing things. You know, um, I have to be open to eating food that I've never eaten before. Um, I have to, you certainly have to open yourself because you may be going to a country where you don't speak the language. Yep. So 
And now you're junk, you're going into a locker room and it's the same way. And what happens, Stephen, is if you're not going to open yourself to the greater culture, you have to be so good that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you're talking about you have to be so good that it doesn't matter, that means you have to be almost a Hall of Fame caliber player, right? Where yeah. everybody is, okay, yeah, you know, Antonio's not going to talk to us, but he's so good that we got to put up with it. Who cares, right? <laughs> basically? Yeah. Right, who cares? Yeah, who yeah. cares? And, and, and most players are not that good, and that's no disrespect to anybody, mm-hmm. but most players, there's a, there's a reason why there's an all-NBA team. There's a reason why there's an MVP, because most players aren't that, right? So I think... And if you look at, you know, let's take Porzingis, for example. And I, I talk about this for a lot, a lot. I use this example. When there's a, a pretty famous picture of Porzingis in Latvia as a kid, and he may have been 10 years old, I don't know, mm-hmm. as a kid with an Iverson jersey and braids, right? Very famous picture. Uh-huh. And so what happens is, Porzingis was already in tune with the NBA culture. So when he came into the locker room in New York, that barrier of entry or that learning curve was not as steep as someone else's because Porzingis was already in tune with what was going on here. Mm-hmm. So the guys in the locker room look, Stephen, and say, wow, okay, you know, he's already, quote unquote, hip to what we do. He's one of us, basically, yeah. Right, right. So now that that resistance, that, you know, that cultural clash is not nearly as significant as it is for someone who comes into a locker room and doesn't try and open themselves up to the greater culture, right? And so that works both ways. That works for not only European players coming to the States and playing in the NBA, but that also works for American players going over to Europe and playing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the ones that don't make it oftentimes are the ones that's not the basketball. They're good enough to be there more than likely. Mm -hmm. It's the man, you know, just how they do things and the food. And I just couldn't adjust to that. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. That's actually incredible. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. But that's how I see it. That's yeah, how yeah. I see it. And, you know, and, and that's how I see it. And that's makes sense. Makes oh, a lot of sense, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, moving on uh, 2018, DeAndre Ayton, the Suns picked uh, DeAndre Ayton with the first pick. Uh, yes. What was like the biggest pull factor, you know, when you decided to select DeAndre? And why did you decide to go with DeAndre instead of guys like Luka Doncic and uh, Trey Young? Um, so, so with DeAndre, one of the things was, you know, you, you look at the things that he does that he can, and we talked about this a little bit, just roll out of bed and yeah. Right. And there are things that he can just roll out of bed and do at his size when you combine the athleticism and the dexterity and the agility with his size, they're just things that he can just roll out of bed and do. Um, of course, we knew Luca was going to be great. You know, of course, we knew Trey Young was going to be great. Um, of course, um, but when we were looking at DeAndre again, there are just things that we felt like that he could just inherently roll out of bed and do that mm-hmm. we didn't have on our roster, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And 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 so that that's one of the things too 
that that you know you sort of look at when you're going back and you're looking at a draft and it's do we pick best available do we pick need um you're also trying to project who has bigger upside is all of these things that that go into it as well will this player come in and work out for you right because luca uh, luca declined the workout with the Suns. so 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 that's the you you have to be able to ascertain that right yep, like yep. will a guy come in and work out for you and and again if you know in some ownerships ownership is different you know um some owners are i the owner is saying hey i have to meet this this guy as well and if he doesn't want to come in and work out with us and meet with us then you know we can't select him no matter what mm-hmm. some owners are like that some owners aren't like that and and those decisions also drive personnel moves as well and and um so so DeAndre, because of those things, and we thought, of course, there were tre- tremendous upside, tremendous talent, and, yeah, and things that he can do as he continues to learn the game. Um, and of course, the learning curve is always steeper for a big. It's always, it always is. And, and um, what he is benefiting from now is, and, and you're starting to see a little bit of those results. He's actually rebounding. He's having a really good year rebounding the ball. But one of the things that's happening for him as well is really mastering how to operate in, in screen role. His skills are coming along. He's becoming a better shooter, but he's really sort of getting a master class on trying to operate in screen role because he's playing with Chris Paul. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so when you are a big, you know, oftentimes, because as you said, Stephen, you're playing that dependent position. So sometimes your production is based on the people that are fabricating shots for you. Yep. Right. Yep. And and so now he's playing with really strong point guard. Devin is sort of graduated as well in that um, playmaking sense also. So um, I'm, I'm anticipating big things from DeAndre. But as I say that, I know this isn't popular when people say this, Stephen. That doesn't mean from a scouting perspective that we're looking at Trey Young and Luca and be like, oh man, I don't like him. I don't like him. Because that's how people try to force it. Yeah. But obviously it wasn't like that. Cause I can tell you this. When I scouted Trey Young, I felt like Trey Young was the best pick and roll player that I saw in college basketball in at least a decade. Mm-hmm. He was that good. Mm-hmm. And 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 I know this also, you know. My philosophy on it, Stephen, is whether it was Luca, whether we drafted Luca, whether we drafted Trey, one of the things that people talk about, and rightfully so with those players, is how are they defensively, right? Mm-hmm. Here's, my, here's my, my take on it. The way that I looked at it is, and I was a defensive guy as well, right? But when I'm looking, Stephen, at guys that are giving you 30 points and 11, rebu- 11 assists a night, right, and, or Luca is giving you what he's giving you a night, triple doubles and things of that nature, I'm talking 40-point triple doubles. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing I need to be able to ascertain from a defensive standpoint is, are you competitive enough to try? Okay, if you're competitive enough to try, I can live with that because mm-hmm. – I'm not asking you to be Patrick Beverly when you're giving me 30 points and 11 assists. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't ask you to do that. And, and so, so for me, that's how I look at it again, where it's like, 
you know, it's, man, you got Devin and, and Trey potentially in the backcourt, who are they going to guard? Those guys are, are generating so much offense and putting so much pressure on the opposing defense that I can't, you know, sweat them about who they're going to guard. Mm-hmm. I got to get other people to do that. Exactly. Does, exactly. does that make sense? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah. Let me get somebody else to do that. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 2018, you also selected the Mikhail Bridges, 10th uh, yes. overall. Uh, right. Can you talk about, you know, why did you guys uh, decide to go with uh, Mikhail and uh, how does he fit what the Phoenix Suns are trying to do, you know, moving forward? And and he's, he, you know, the, the, the bubble. And I was saying this when I was on my shows, I was saying this well before we had a date as to when the NBA was going to return with the bubble. I was saying on my shows and, and, and you know, as they say, check the tape <laughs> that <laughs> these games, those eight play-in games or those eight seeding games were the most important professional games that Devin Booker, Mikael Bridges, those guys have played since they've been in the NBA. Those are the most important NBA games ever. Mm-hmm. So I was very, I was saying that before, well before we had a date, yet alone before they went eight and because why, why was that? Because the team, of course, being young, mm-hmm. right, was taking, we were taking our lumps, being young, growing with our young guys. But once those 22 teams entered the, bu- the, the bubble and you had those teams at the, at the bottom, Memphis, New Orleans, um, Memphis, New Orleans, Portland. Sacramento, Phoenix, um, and Portland, yes, yeah. playing for that, those, those final two spots, there was a there was a little bit of pressure there, mm-hmm. so these those that's why those were the most important games in Devin and and Mikhail and you know DeAndre's career because now they're playing some games with a little bit of pressure, meaningful games, right? First time playing meaningful. These games, games the mean something. Yep. Yes, these games now mean something because you're chasing something, mm-hmm. and and so so that was so I I was saying that early early on, mm-hmm. and so Mikhail has he played pretty well in those games and he has leveraged that to get off to a really good start this year he's playing really well this year yep. so far yeah and and you know what i liked about him was again by the by his last year at villanova he was definitely the the, the lead dog from an offensive standpoint right mm-hmm. played in meaningful games won national championships was coached and held accountable yep. right Those things mattered. And so now when he gets to the NBA, he inherently wanted to be good. He worked at it on his own. So you, you take all of those things and you bring those to the NBA. Those are, of course, from a character standpoint, when you're a young team and you're trying to establish your foundation, you want those attributes part of your foundation. Mm-hmm. But from a playing standpoint, I looked at him and said, one of the things I like to look at Steven and say is, when I'm scouting a guy, I'll look and say, because upside is important, but so is now side, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, you got to be able to do something for me now, yeah, right? Absolutely. So when I'm scouting guys, I'll look and say, okay, what's your best skill? All right, say your best skill is defending. Okay, defending, great. That's your best skill. Can you do that at the NBA level? You can? Okay, we're going to draft you. That's how I see it, mm-hmm. right? And I don't want to overdraft you, but I'm going to draft you, 
right? And, if you and can add something to that, it probably raises your draft value. That's it. That's yeah. it. Once you get to, so I'm drafting you to guard guys, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you start adding other things to the toolbox, then great, right? But mm -hmm. I don't want to romanticize upside and say, oh, man, if we can get this guy and he's going to do this and he's going to do that and he's going to do this and he's going to do that because he may not do any of those things, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So I need to be able to look at, is there something that you can do right now, right? Okay, that's what you do. That's what I'm going to draft you for. So when I looked at Mikael Bridges, I thought immediately this guy will be able to guard wings in the NBA. And we know how um, important that is because if you, you have to, if you're going to win a title, you have to have one of those multidimensional, you know, generational type wings. Yep. Those are the guys that win titles, right? Yep. And, and, and um, so you have to be able to defend those guys. Right. You, you have to be able to defend those guys, much like in the NFL, cornerbacks have become very, very important because the way the rules are, they can throw the ball all over the field. So you've got to be able to defend those guys. Yep. So so when I looked at Mikhail, I saw that I say very and he he wasn't a guy. Oh, man, if we can get him to defend. No, no, no. That's who he is in his DNA. Mm -hmm. Right. He's going to he defend no matter what, basically. That's yeah. it. Mm -hmm. That's it. So we saw that. And then, um, you know, and he's improved as a shooter. He keeps improving as a shooter. And, and you know, and so th that's what, for me, attracted me to him. And, um, you know, and, and I liked him. And he's in, he ended up being a pretty good pick. What do you think is the ceiling for him? Is, can he become like the ult ultimate uh, NBA 3 and D guy? I think he can be become that ultimate three, three and D guy. You know, um, I think he can do that. And those guys are insanely valuable. Right. And, yeah. and, and um, they are insanely valuable. And, and especially when you look at him, because right now he is playing with an elite scorer at the two. He's playing with an elite point guard and he's playing with an up, up and coming center. So that means he's going to get a lot of kickouts, a lot of looks uncontested looks. And I say this, Stephen, because people, and I know, I know people say this, but you know this game very well. People underestimate just how difficult it is to make an uncontested shot. It's right? the toughest shot in basketball, for sure. No question. <laughs> so <People> psychological. Under, <laughs> yes, there's yeah. no question about that. Yeah. And people, you know, when they look at it, they're like, oh, it's just an open shot. People underestimate how difficult it is to make a, an open shot. Because for me as a player, that was probably, I was much better and much, much more adept at making shots when guys are hanging all over me and all because I yeah. took that personally. Right. Yep. As, as the Michael, as Steph Curry say, said, said <laughs> the Michael Jordan meme. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I took that personally. So I loved it when guys wanted to dig in and guard and, you know, they're growling and OK, let's go. But it is insanely difficult to make an open shot, especially when guarding. when the defense is giving you that shot. You know, when they're exactly. you, making you shoot the ball. It's so tough. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's very, very tough. Yes. It's very tough. And, and with so, guys like Giannis, um, and uh, he's struggling with that so much. 
he airballed it, uh, the open three. He crossed the half court the other night and he airballed the open three because defense was <laughs> in the paint. So, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough. It's yeah. tough, especially when you're, you know, when you're a guy like Giannis, where teams are devoting so much of their defensive resources to guard you and to stop you. That's what you're used to. Mm -hmm. And and that's why you, that's what made you, that's why you're this superhuman player because you're used to making shots like that. You know, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant are probably the greatest at making difficult shots. Shot Incredibly. Makers, yeah. yeah. They, they are probably the best in the history of the game at doing that, mm -hmm. you know, where people are hanging all over you and, but, but it is so hard. That's part of the reason why, you know, taking Kobe is part of the reason why Kobe said, my favorite teammate is Derek Fisher, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of his shots were <clears throat> like that, Yep. you know, and, and going back to what I was saying about being able to play with players that are better than you and your mentality being smart enough, people forget this. When Derek Fisher was coming out of Arkansas Little Rock, Derek Fisher was one of the, the nation's leaders in scoring mm -hmm. in college. But he completely changed his game. There's a reason why most of the time, uh, Stephen, there's a reason why most of the time the guy that leads Division One in scoring doesn't play in the NBA. Right? Because oftentimes the only way that that player can be effective is if every single play is drawn up for them. Every single play on every single possession. Well, that's probably, that is not going to be the case for you in the NBA. Yeah, yeah. Right? most likely, yeah. Right, right. So I say that because, and those are the things going back to Mikhail. I, I just think Mikhail, and he's played in that role when he was at Villanova with Josh Hart, when he was with Jalen Brunson. He wasn't a feature guy when they were winning national championships. When they won their first one, he wasn't a feature guy, mm -hmm. right? And he was just defending, defending, and, you know, hitting a timely shot. But then as time went on, he grew more into a, a feature role defensively, but he had already done the role that he's going to play in the NBA. He, ha he had already been there before he got there, mm -hmm. right? And that's the same with Josh Hart. He had already been there, right? And mm -hmm. then at the end of his career at Villanova, he became a scorer. And, and now he gets back into the NBA and he's like, okay, I'm back in the role that I was in because the role that he was playing initially at Villanova was probably going to be the role that he was going to play once he got to the NBA. It takes a lot right. of ego, ego management to do that. It's, Especially it, when you man. tasted like, uh, you know, more shots, you scored a lot of more, more points, then you have to kind of degrade yourself to a, oh, degrade yourself to a role player in the NBA. It takes a lot of ego right. management. Yeah. It, 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 it really does. And that goes back to the point that I was saying when you, are, you know, part of this club, this 400 and, I mean, 4,200 or so people, you're part of this club and it takes an insane amount of confidence and belief in oneself to get there, but you also got to be open to, you know what, I have to kind of be accepting and mastering and a master of my role as well. Mm -hmm. That's a hard balance, man. And that's mm -hmm. why a lot of guys don't make it. It's not the talent. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Uh, so obviously the Suns have a lot of great pieces. What is your prediction for them uh, in this season? I think they'll be in the playoffs. I definitely mm -hmm. think they'll be in the playoffs. And mm -hmm. and uh, I, I was, you know, a lot of people were thinking, you know, why do why would they go and get Chris Paul? And you know, he doesn't sort of fit on the career scale with their young players. Mm -hmm. 
I wasn't in that camp. And the reason why, I was, right, right. I wasn't in that camp, Stephen. And the reason why is because, A, of course, Chris Paul is amazing. That's as a player. Forget the mentorship and forget all that. He's an amazing player, even today, right? Yep. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is, you know, I know Joe Q Public as a fan, Stephen, will say when their team is an eight seed, right? And I talked about this. I've talked about this a lot before. If their team is fighting for an eight seed and they're a young team, you know, Joe Q Public will say, why won't they just go and get another lottery pick? Why are they fighting? Because you're going to go in the first round and you're going to play the one seed and you're going to get swept, right? And going back to my example about Phoenix playing in the bubble. Meaningful games. You want your young players to play meaningful games as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the ultimate example of that. The 2019 Toronto Raptors, mm-hmm. right? You add Kawhi to the mix, it gets you over the top, right? Mm-hmm. But in addition to relying, Stephen, on those veteran players, Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, Kyle Lowry, um, and, and then, of course, um, Kawhi, obviously. They were also relying on very young players also. OG Ananobi, mm-hmm. Fred Van Vliet, Norman Powell, yep. uh, um, Pascal Siakam, right? Why were those players, why was the NBA Finals in that stage not too big for them? Because a lot of those players faced LeBron James when the Raptors were going to the Eastern Conference Finals, right? Take OG Ananobi as a rookie, Stephen, guarding LeBron on an island, right? So he's guarding LeBron on an island. He's seen everything. At that point, I'm guarding LeBron on an island in the playoffs. There isn't anything else in the NBA that nobody can show me something that I haven't seen now. Yep. There isn't, right? there isn't a tougher matchup in the league. There so. isn't a tougher matchup. And yeah. play, this is LeBron in playoff mode, mm-hmm. right? This is LeBron trying to go to the finals mode. This isn't as great as LeBron is. This, is, this isn't LeBron playing against a rookie in the 15th game of the season, Yeah, right? This is LeBron in what he calls zero dark 23 mode, Yep. right? <laughs> yep. Yes. So when you're a young guy, and you're on that island with that dude or you're Fred Van Vliet and you're playing in these playoff series. You're Norman Powell and you're playing in these playoff series. You're Pascal Siakam and you're doing this. There's nothing better for you. You're in the Eastern Conference Finals, first or second year in the league. You know, I use an example. When Isaiah Thomas, who is so underrated, the great Isaiah Thomas, both of them are great, but the Hall of Fame Isaiah Thomas. Mm-hmm. When he was the lead basketball executive in Toronto when he drafted Damon Stoudemire and Marcus Camby, right? When Stoudemire was in his second year, Marcus Camby had just finished his first year. He took them to the the NBA finals and they sat basically courtside to watch the Chicago Bulls play in the finals because his thought process, Isaiah Thomas's was, there's nothing that, we can't watch this on TV. You need to see this up close and personal to see what this is really like, 
right? Mm -hmm. And so as a player, there's nothing that prepares you more for that than seeing what it's really like. So if you have a young promising team, sure, I like draft picks, but you got to get those guys that experience, right? Mm -hmm. So then in year three or year four, now they're really to make a, ready to make a push instead of in year five, this is the first time they played a meaningful game in their NBA career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. I actually agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's get back to scouting a little bit more. How do you, how do you decide between uh, picking the best talent versus picking the best fit? Is that something that's uh, purely situational? And how, do, how much does it depend on how high of, of a pick you're in possession of? Um, yeah, it depends on that, but it all, it depends on when you're looking at your board and where you're picking and you're looking at your board and you're looking, I'm, I'm personally a best available guy mm -hmm. and just pick the best available guy. But if you think it's close, then you start picking for need. Mm -hmm. If you think it's close in terms of the best available guy and your need, if you know, the best available guy, say you need a center or you need a point guard and the best available guy is a center and you have them at, and you're picking at 10 and the best available guy is center. You have him at, he's on your board and you have him at 12 and then you have on your board and then you have a point guard at 13 on your board. Mm -hmm. Right. And so at that point you, it's, you know, you pick for need because it's close in your mind, but If there's a huge discrepancy between the best player, you know, say some player drops because something happened above you that was a surprise. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy on the board that you didn't think that was going to be on the board. And you feel like he is so much better than that position of need. You take that best player and you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And and um, so so that's my philosophy on it. And um, and I'm always take the best player. But if it's close. You, 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 you look at it, you look at it. And of course, being um, where you're at from a draft standpoint also makes a difference because say if you're at the end of the first round or something like that, you know, if you're, you're lucky to, you're fortunate if you get a guy that can be a rotation player or, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. at that point, you just take the best guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No questions, yeah. Uh, who is the most uh, talented player you've ever scouted? The most talented player that I've ever scouted when I was at, so when I was at ESPN, I little story here. Okay, <laughs> when I was at ESPN, um, I was also working um, for Marty and Ryan Blake in NBA scouting. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the NBA scouting department. And we, and I was working out of the Northeast region, you know, we're doing the invites for Portsmouth, the combine, et cetera. So I went to an event in New York and I saw a player, Steven, and the player was three for 16 in the game or three for 15, something like that. And the only thing I wrote in my notes was I just watched the best player in the country. Who was he's the player? 15. <laughs> it was Kevin Durant when wow. he was at when he was at Texas. Wow. He had a really bad game. But if you play the game and you know the game, and I've been on both sides of this, this is the analogy I like to use. I've been on both sides. Offensively, I've been on the side, Stephen, where 
a guy is guarding me and I'm getting every single look that I want and I'm getting it easily. I'm just not making the shots. So statistically, it looks like this guy is stopping me, but he knows and I know, dude, I'm just missing shots. I'm creating space. I got everything I want. I'm just missing shots, Mm -hmm. right? Then defensively, I've been on the other side as well where I'm locking in and guarding the guy and he's doing the same thing to me, getting his shots, getting to his spots, creating his space. And he's just missing shots. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the game, it looked like I did a great job defensively against him. He was just having a bad game. So when I watch Kevin Durant, again, this is using my own experience and through my own lens. When I was watching that particular game, I went back to those experiences and I'm watching him and I'm like, nobody can bother his shot because he's seven feet tall, right? They're not bothering his shot. He's creating space. He's doing it efficiently. He's getting everywhere he wants to get. He's just not making the shots today. Mm-hmm. And that for, to me, and, and just how the ease, the economy of movement, how easily he was doing it, Stephen. It was like, man, this guy's the best player in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> incredible, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, is is there someone who wowed you as a prospect but wasn't able to f- fulfill his potential as a pro? Not necessarily a bust um, uh, that you drafted, but you know, just overall. Yeah. Um. If 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 there's a guy that that I'm trying to think who comes to mind, a guy that I looked at and I thought, man, this guy's going to be amazing, and and it, uh, it sure wasn't Kevin Durant, <laughs> right? It wasn't him. It was um, I'll have to say, um, there are a few guys that that I look at that I feel like have some potential, and they're young guys, and I and I feel like, you know, maybe there's some time for them. Marquise Chris. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I liked him a lot. I liked him a lot. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot to like. And, and hopefully he gets uh, healthy and gets better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, he's a guy that I certainly see there. There's, um, I, I think, in terms of his talent and, and, and what, he's, what he currently offers and is not sort of commiserate with his talent. Mm-hmm. I think he's very, very talented. Mm-hmm. Very talented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who do you think is the best talent from the 2020 NBA draft? The rookie class um the best talent it, it's it's i would say the best natural talent is probably james wiseman mm-hmm. and, and he's agree. probably the best natural talent mm-hmm. yeah I, i think he's the best natural talent in the 2020 draft mm-hmm. um but also too again we talk about situations and and i i like lamello i like lamello ball um But James is in a different situation, mm-hmm. you know, on a team with Steph Curry, was supposed to be on a team with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. So yeah. the scoring opportunities, he's on a team with Andrew Wiggins, who averages 20 points a game for his career, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he's on a team with Andrew Wiggins, of course, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, you know, so they're, the Warriors, of course, they're devoted to developing James, but they're also trying to make the playoffs and win and do those things as well. So again, James is, is also in a very different situation than some of the other rookies, you know, um, that he's end up being the number one pick and, and um, you know, and, and, and 
I know um, um, Lamelo isn't starting, but when they put when they put him in the game, there's no question, Stephen. As to who's the guy that makes this thing go, right? There's no question. They give him the ball and and they live through the good things. They live through if he makes a mistake. They live through it all. And I, I think even in Minnesota, I don't know if Anthony Edwards is in that situation. Mm. You know, because Malik Beasley is playing really well this year so far, mm-hmm. right? So with, with Malik Beasley, with uh, uh, D'Angelo Russell as well, they already have guys at, at Anthony Edwards' positions that are, are bona fide. And D'Angelo Russell's an all-star. Malik Beasley is a bona fide NBA starter, right? And, and so with that being said, he's in a, a different situation than LaMelo. So again, situation means everything. But in terms of natural talent, I would have to say James Wiseman. And whose situation do you like the most? Because Lamelo has all the freedom, but James will; those meaningful games will come quicker. Yes, so. yes. You, for me, I, I would probably say um, if I had a choice and if I were a rookie, and of course, this is using my lens, not their lens. Because if you're li- using their lens, of course, you're saying, "Man, I wish I would." Look, I'm sure James is like, "I wish I was in Lamelo's situation." If you're looking at it through their lens, but if I'm looking at it through my lens. I would probably rather have James's situation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and and because of like you said those meaningful games. And Charlotte is making a push, but you know those that championship caliber experience, being next to people that have won championships, and yep. and them pouring into you. Because it's one thing, Stephen, to be next to guys that win championships, but they're not pouring into you. They're not invested in your development the guys in Golden State are invested in James, James's development. Especially Draymond. Right, right. So, so I would, again, through my lens, I would rather be in that situation. Mm -hmm. That's great, man. So you, you provided us with a great insight into the world of NBA scouting. Uh, Can you just talk about uh, what, uh, what are you doing now? Because you're not, you're no longer an NBA scout. You can talk about your businesses. So, so at right now, I'm actually doing, uh, again, that sports content, doing that analysis. I have my show on Vocal, and the way that's spelled is V-O-V, like Victor, O-K-A-L, so not V-O-C-A-L, V-O-K-A-L. Mm-hmm. It's called, that's the, the network that it's on. It's called the Antonio Williams Show, and of course, we're giving basketball insight where my first show was actually a redraft you should listen to it steven watch it it's the redraft of the 2015 draft so i listened to it yeah yeah Yeah, so i so that was my first show with a friend of mine um who writes for uh, bleacher report sean hyken does a great job for them Mm -hmm. uh we redrafted the 2015 lottery and um and so great show had a lot of fun with that but we're doing analysis on the NBA, analysis on college basketball. We're talking about the NFL. We're talking about um, branding because of my experience at Nike. Fashion, because obviously that's a big part of the NBA, right? Uh So we're we're talking about all those things. And in fact, I need to have you on and interview you, man. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll be glad, man, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to flip lenses and talk about some of the stuff in the NBA. Yeah, for and, sure, for sure. Man. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. do that. And what about the, the, I read that you were involved with the esports industry. Can you talk yes. about that? Yes. And uh, so I have a partner, his name is Victor Cruz. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like the Victor Cruz that played um, 
wide receiver for the uh, New York Giants, uh, mm-hmm. spelled the same way. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, Victor and I worked together when we were with the uh, Boston Red Sox. And um, we decided to start an esports company that majors in and specializes, specializes in um, advocacy for esports athletes. And whether that's the athletes themselves, whether that's esports casters, um, game developers, et cetera. Uh, because as this industry continues to grow, and there are so many young people that are prominent figures in this industry, and I don't mean this in a paternalistic way or a conceited way, but the, the people that, the young people that are making this industry grow, they need some advocacy. People that have been in this space to protect them, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and uh, because, you know, it's very easy to say, man, I can't believe that. And sometimes I would tickle myself or pinch myself. I can't believe I'm being paid to watch basketball because yep. I do this for free, yep. right? And, and um, you know, it's very easy to think the same thing in the esports industry. I'm being paid to play a game, but not really understanding and embracing your worth, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so we need advocates to help you understand and embrace your worth. Because again, if you're doing it at that very, very high level, the amount of focus that it takes to do it at that high level, it's almost better for you to do that and have someone, of course, you understand what's going on from a business standpoint, but have someone that you trust, have someone that's reputable, that can be your advocate away from the game. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so you can concentrate on being the best version of yourself in the game. That's incredible, man. Incredible. Appreciate uh, it. You said that uh, you do watch the NBA today. You're a fan. Yes, uh, who, I who do. do you, what, what do you think about the current state of the league? Um, I, I think there are a couple things. You know, I, I think the current state of the league is, is, is good. I think it's good. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like how wh- one of the things that I like is how the established players are embracing that mentorship role to take these younger guys and help show them the way, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's LeBron, whether that's KD. And I know, um, you know, he gets a bad rap, but, and, and, but Kyrie does these things as well. Steph does these things. So the fact that the, of course, Damian Lillard does these things, you know, um, so how these current greats are taking the young guys and really mentoring them on how to be great in their own ways. Um, I like that. Um, but from a playing perspective, there are a lot of things in the game that I like. There are some things that that I, I find not too desirable as well. Um, you know, um, I, I'll say this. I think, especially in the college game, um, but you see this in NBA as well. I think, Stephen, and I don't mean, I don't want to sound like a relic, but I I, I want to state this. I think the amount of ball screens that we see in the game today have robbed us from some of the creativity of the players. It's too much, and basically. It's too, right, right. It's right. It, because we have, because we have ball screen, ball screen, ball screen, ball screen, we now have sh- what we call straight line drivers, mm-hmm. right? So we've labeled it, it essentially we have labeled a deficiency. And when you label that deficiency, you empower that deficiency, right? And what I mean by that is when a a person can't efficiently move laterally with the ball, 
instead of having them enhance that skill, we say, oh, he's a straight line driver. Mm -hmm. So they never have to improve on that skill. Mm -hmm. And it takes some of the creativity out of the game. Mm-hmm. because you know when i'm at college games and i'm scouting and i'm watching them steven it's nauseating to see a point guard grab the ball how many times you see this steven he has the ball under his arm like this he points at a guy and then he points down yeah too many right? times for sure so he's pointing at that guy to get tell come set a screen for me and come set it right here and it's like and i'm looking at this and my job as a point guard, I always thought, Stephen, was especially when the shot clock was in its last 10 seconds or so, I have to make something out of nothing, mm-hmm. right? So I have to be able to efficiently not stand there and take 20 dribbles, but efficiently not only go in a straight line with my dribble, but go left or go right efficiently and creatively with my dribble as well. And so what happens is because we have so few people that can do that, Stephen, the guys that can stick out like a sore thumb, Kimber Walker, Chris Paul, right? Those guys that can do that, they stick out Kyrie. They stick out like a sore thumb because so many of these guys, I got to get the ball, go straight to the basket, get the ball, go straight to the basket. It's taking some of that creativity from these great players that have that creativity gene embedded in their dna it's taking that creativity out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i'm guessing uh, your favorite player isn't james harden <laughs> <laughs> you know and and it's funny man when you watch james it's, it's so funny that's why and i and i said this i was on records i've been on record saying this i personally feel like it's going to work in, in brooklyn mm-hmm. i've always felt like it was going to work in brooklyn mm-hmm. because who James Harden is from, he is a insanely skilled player. And the James Harden that we see, and maybe I'm holding on to the past, but the James, we see remnants of the James Harden from Oklahoma City. And we saw that in Houston. And one of the remnants is this dude is leading the league in assists. Yep. yep. Right. So that's Oklahoma City, James Harden. Mm-hmm. So it's in his DNA. It's, it, it's programmed in him. And that's why I think when he gets to Brooklyn, it's going to work and he's there now. And the biggest beneficiary, in my opinion, Stephen, is going to be Kyrie Irving. Mm -hmm. Because the amount of, because he's going to be on a team that has three guys that opposing defenses have to do something special to account for. But it's only five guys, so they can't do any something special to account for all of those guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's going to leave Kyrie operating one-on-one a lot, right? And now, as a point guard, I can say this. Ky- where the balance has to come in is nobody can cover Kyrie one-on-one. He's going to see a lot of it one-on-one. Now, the balance when you see the sacrifice from all three of those guys, but in, from Kyrie in particular, is the, the sacrifice will be just because I'm one-on-one every time down the floor and nobody can contain me one-on-one doesn't mean that I'm going to shoot it every time mm-hmm. just because I'm open. And that's and, – but, but I tell you, man, Kyrie is going to have a field day with this. But, but again, I think James is much better going – left and right efficiently than he's demonstrated in Houston. I think he's much better at that. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and, and we're seeing some aspects of it now when he's playing with KD because he's got to be a little more e efficient. And when Kyrie comes, he's going to be more efficient. I, I personally think this is going to work. But as I said, I would like to see some of that creativity back in the game. I think it'd be great. So are the Nets your favorites to come out of East? I, I have when you when you have three those three guys, yes, they're And my to favorite win it to all? come out of the East. I can't go against LeBron. And and I say that, Stephen, in, in all honesty, I say that in I, I thought the Clippers were going to come out of the West last year. Mm -hmm. I thought the Clippers were going to come out of the West. And yep. you know, who knows if if there was no bubble? Who knows? Who knows? If if the season just went on convent in a conventional manner, who knows? Can they bounce back uh, this season though? The Clippers. That's a good that's a good question. Um I think the Clippers are a really good team. And I, I think I think they I think they're a really good team. I think they will bounce back. I think they'll have a great year. Um, you know, people predicting their demise or every time they lose a game, someone trolls them. Like, you know, I, I think that's a little premature. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think the Lakers are the best team in the West. Um, the one thing that concerned me about the Lakers a little bit was They, they weren't a tremendous shooting team. So since they weren't a tremendous shooting team, sometimes their best offense was because they had so much athleticism and length on the front line. Sometimes their best offense was get a shot up on the glass and let, you know, two of these three guys at all times, AD, um, JaVale McGee, Dwight Howard, let those guys, one or two of those guys just go and get it, mm -hmm. right? That was their best offense sometimes. And, and, and um, so that athleticism and length also manifested itself on the defensive end of the floor for them as well. And, and, and so when they pivoted in free, agency, in free agency, and those are great pickups, I was concerned if, if I was, again, me being concerned is literally like splitting hairs. It's like finding something wrong, mm -hmm. right? I was a little bit concerned about that, giving up that athleticism. But one, Marcus All is incredibly, is an incredible defense, uh, positional defender, mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. and, and then secondly, I think, I think Montrez Harrell and his reputation from a defensive standpoint I think his reputation his bad reputation defensively is very much overblown mm -hmm. right and the reason why I say that Stephen is because a he was in the top 25 last year in in, in uh in block shots but the second thing and obviously blocking shots is a is a is a um is protecting the rim protecting the paint but Another aspect of protecting the rim and protecting the paint is taking charges. Mm -hmm. And, and, and um, Montrez Harrell was amongst the league's leaders last year in taking charges, right? So because of the fact that he can contest shots and he takes charges, I think him, that defensive reputation that he, that he gained, I, I think it's a little bit overblown and it's not, nearly what people said it was. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, go on, go on, go on, sorry. No, no, go ahead. 
So I was just, you know, <laughs> so the Lakers are going to win it all. Who's going to be the, the regular season MVP? That's a that's a good one. Um, I, I would say the regular season MVP will be. I think the regular season MVP will be Kevin Durant. Wow. Wow. I you don't think, think his Kevin numbers Durant. will go down once the, the big three starts to play together? I, I think his numbers will go down a little bit, but but um I I think I think with we also know with the MVP, this award can be about narrative as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily the award that goes to quote unquote the best player every single year the yep. best player on the best team. It, it, it shifts. The, the goalposts move in terms of who gets it and who doesn't. And so I think Kevin Durant will still put up amazing numbers. Um, I think what one of the things that he'll do is I think in Golden State, what Kevin Durant gave Golden State was we talk about the shooting, we talk about the scoring, but it's an aspect of the scoring that Kevin Durant gave that Golden State didn't have. Their paint points came from Kevin Durant, right? Getting getting to the rim. The second thing is Kevin Durant gave them a shot blocker, and 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 I think I think Kevin Durant. I think people will early on at least people are starting to appreciate some of these other aspects of his game right now. Of course, he's scoring and all that, but with him playing at the level that he's playing at. And coming back from the injury, I think that's the narrative. And I think he wins MVP. Yeah, I'd love that. He's actually my favorite player. So <laughs> I love Kevin Durant, yeah, man. He's, he's he's incredible, man. Incredible. Man. <laughs> incredible. <laughs> no question. Okay. okay, Antonio, let's let's wrap it up with a few quick fire questions. That's yep. uh, usually what we do at the end of our, our, our interview. So, you know, just quick answers and and that'll be all. So yep. who is the most underrated player in the NBA today? Karis LeVert. Wow. Okay. Uh, who is the best player in the world? Man. Oh, man. <laughs> um, the best player in the world. LeBron James. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, all-time starting five. All-time? All-time. Yep. Um, my all-time starting five is... Kareem at the five. At the four, I'm going, and I know people split hairs with this, but at the four, at what, at what position he is, I'm going Duncan at the four. At the three, I'm going LeBron at the three. I'm going Jordan at the two. And I'm going Kobe at the one. Wow, no magic. That that's that's very very tough. Yeah, 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 you know yeah. you know it, it's because I'm I, I you know what I'm going I'm going magic at the one. I'm going magic at the one. It's, <laughs> that was a tough one yeah. because I want Kobe. I want Kobe in there so bad. Yeah, me too. I want me Kobe too. in there so bad. I yeah. want Kobe in there so bad. It's but hard I, to put it, him. It's magic. It's yeah, magic. It's hard to put him over Magic and uh, or Jordan. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and I want him in there so bad. Who is the goat? The goat? 
the greatest of all time is Wilt Chamberlain. Wow. And who is in the GOAT conversation? Jordan, of course. Magic. LeBron. Oscar. And, and um, Kareem. So please explain uh, Wilt as the GOAT. I'm wondering. <laughs> Be because... You know, we talk about errors and, and, and we when we and, and this is unfair because you're comparing errors and we talk about errors. But if you look at what Wilt was able to do statistically, Wilt could have done that in any era. Wilt could have done that against anybody. And and because he, he had what we call and a lot of players don't have this today, Stephen because of training and, and players specializing in basketball. Players don't have functional athleticism anymore, right? Case in point, if you watch, pick the NBA player when they get invited to a baseball uh, game and they throw out the first pitch. And it's like, how could this person be so athletic and that ball is all over the place, right? Because they don't have functional athleticism because we specialize, we play one sport and that's it. Well, Wilt was dominant in track and field, dominant as a, as a sprinter, dominant as a jumper in track and field. He had functional athleticism and that translated to basketball. And so, and, and all the movements, they're, they're, he could do everything. I mean, for a guy to literally play the five when centers were in their most traditional sense, and score the amount of points that he scored, 100 points in a game, right? And, you know, averaging the amounts of rebounds that he averaged, that he had 55, point, 55 rebound games and those things. To be able to do that and play in an era with Kareem, play in an era with Russell. So, so he played in an era with real centers. Mm -hmm. To do that and then to turn around and say, Stephen, I'm going to lead the league in assists because you guys say I'm selfish. Yeah. Right. So just to show you, I can do this. I, you know, and, and I say this, Stephen, understand this. I wore 23 as a player. Uh -huh. So Jordan's my, my dude. Right. I was, of course I was a point guard, but my formal training in playing basketball, I was playing in the post. And then I moved to the two. And then I found out later that I was a point guard, right? And so then I morphed into to the position and grew into it, et cetera. But I wore 23. So that's my guy. But when I think about, and all of these players are great, but when I think about that aspect of it, what this guy could do is seven feet tall. And, and you hear like the other great players that he played against when there's a great player and the great players are wild by by this great player that says a lot when mm -hmm. other great players look at this guy and say man this this guy can do things that i couldn't do and and i was amazed by him and it's like yeah but you're great mm -hmm. it, it's i i would have to say his will man
Yeah, that's a very unique perspective, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I get your, but I, but I see a see your see your point definitely. So, and you know, and I didn't watch him play. I was too young. I you know I didn't see him play. I mean, live. And when I say mm-hmm. see him play, if, oh, of course I've watched games that he's played in and things, but I didn't. I, he he's not my contemporary. Mm-hmm. You know, I love this game so much that I study all of those players. You know, and mm-hmm. and and look at them and see how. They, especially when I was playing, how are there parts of their game that I can incorporate if I have to modernize it? Great, but are there parts of their game, their approach that I could adopt and use for me? So I studied the game and and watch those guys and know about those players and, you know, have more than working knowledge of them, have intimate knowledge of them. But when I look at this guy and I see, you know, what he could do and, and, and the things that he did outside of basketball and how that translated to his greatness in basketball. I just don't know if there's another guy like him. Wow. Incredible. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. That's about yeah, it. no, thank you. Thank you. I, I got to ask you the same question when you're on brother. <laughs> As the goat. Yeah. I have to yeah. say Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger, but I've seen the tapes. I, uh, I, I, I studied the stats. I, I've seen the YouTube videos and stuff and, the stuff he was able to do and the how he revolutionized the game that's right that's something that's you know nobody's close to that level for me right right no and and i agree you know i'm 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 with you there <laughs> i'm with you there uh yeah but, but no but wilt wilt is a weird one for me because those video types video type, video game type numbers you know what do you do with them <laughs> Right, right, right. Because exactly. Because he has a very unique argument for for the greatest of all time. But I, I really do see your point. It's 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 a very interesting perspective. Like I said. So yeah, yeah. Appreciate it, my man. This Thank you, great. man. This this, is this awesome. was great. So insightful, and uh, you know, love to do that uh, some other time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we got to sure. do that soon. So you, you um um I'm going to um. I'll shoot, I'll shoot you a note on LinkedIn so we can connect and yeah, have course. our, have the contact information. We got to do this soon, man. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. I appreciate you, Steven. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, brother. Take care. Bye.